0: Well I'm really glad to speak to you on the topic of who, why, what of Jesus because amongst other things he's the single most dominant person and figure in all of western civilisation more people follow him around the world than any other person for millions and millions of people Jesus is not only their leader not only their hero, not only their, their ruler he is their God in the full sense of the word millions of people know Jesus as the one who has made them, owns them rules them and is one day going to judge them to have no real opinion on Jesus is a sad sad comment especially on our education and our public media to base our life on an inaccurate picture of Jesus be it a very positive picture, or be it a very negative picture, to base our life on an inaccurate picture is not sensible. We need accuracy. We need to know who Jesus was and who he is. So I want to clear some of the ground, first of all, about fact, faith, and fiction concerning Jesus. And the first thing I want to suggest to you is that within the Bible... Fact and faith go together. Fiction, while useful, is never the basis of faith. Fiction is useful. Jesus tells parables, which are fictions. They teach us ideas and concepts, but they're not the basis of faith. Faith is not superstition, believing the unbelievable in the face of all the evidence. Faith is trust. It's trusting the truth. That's what we should do. Trust the truth. And faith is nothing other than trust. Whenever you see the word faith, from a Christian point of view, you may as well put in the word trust because it means exactly the same thing. Trusting the truth and acting upon it. It's not just acknowledging the truth, it's acting on the truth. It's an everyday experience that we do. We trust the cook isn't trying to poison us. We trust the bus driver, does know the way to get where he said he's taking us, and knows how to drive the bus. You trust the chair that you're sitting on right at the moment that it will hold your weight. It's trust is something that is an everyday normality and in personal relationships absolutely essential. It's relying upon what we know. It's depending upon what we know. It's acting upon what we know. That's what we mean by the word faith. People who want to attack Christianity, like Professor Dawkins, they reinterpret the word faith to mean superstition. When all the evidence is against us, when there's no, no evidence at all, or it's totally opposed to us, then we close our eyes and we have a leap into the dark, and that's faith. No, that's not faith, that's stupidity. And that's because people like Professor Dawkins believe that all Christians are fundamentally stupid. And no rational, sensible person would become a Christian. Well, of course not. If you think that it's against all the evidence, without the evidence, it's a leap into the dark. Well, you will think the people who believe it are stupid, because it is stupid. But we don't do that. That just shows his ignorance of Christianity which is deep and very profound. So I'm going to spell out to you what we can know about the who, why, what of Jesus. It's not, though, a simple academic exercise. It does involve faith. For an academic can look at an exercise and say, well, isn't that interesting? And it is. The world is very interesting. All kinds of things you can find are interesting. But this is not just a piece of information that is interesting. If true, this is a piece of information that changes everything in life, all of life, your life, and will challenge you to trust Jesus with your life. Tell you what I'm planning. You'll see on this outline of the talk notes, on page 3 and 4 of the little sheet that we've been given out tonight, you'll see that we've got several headings. We're going to look at who is Jesus, why did he come, over the page, what does, he, uh, what does he require, and then why should we? But my aim isn't just to give my answers. There's no point getting my answers. The aim is to get Jesus' answers to these questions that we find in the New Testament, the original historical documents in the Word of God. And then I'll be inviting you to respond. If you want to know beforehand, the response is actually in the prayer that's printed there at the back of it. See, there is nothing up my sleeve. There's no kind of tricks that are available. It's just an arm, right? There's nothing special, nothing tricky. I'm telling you what it is that I'm doing before I do it, so as to invite you to be involved in doing it. That's, that is the response to what I'm going to be saying and you've got time to look ahead this is not a clever salesman trick that you know. just at the last moment they whip in some small print that you weren't aware of I'm not trying to sell you anything I'm just trying to ask you to give your whole self away and therefore I've got to be very open and honest haven't I in making such a request of you so let's go back to the original text of the New Testament, to the Gospel of Mark, the one that we read earlier there. Page 999, if you're not a, used to be a Bible reader, don't be afraid. I know that when you go to Christian meetings and they, you're not a Bible reader, it's terrifying because there are these people who seem to be able to find sentences just anywhere in a thousand pages at a drop of the hat. I'll give you page numbers, page 999. It's, that's fairly easy to find. And we see the question there, who was Jesus. It's actually asked by Jesus himself. He says there, and I'm looking now down at the end of number 27, who do people say that I am? It's really the turning point of Mark's gospel that we have. It's the turning point of Jesus' preaching. For up until this time, nobody had publicly recognised who he was. In fact, Mark's gospel, the first eight chapters is about who is Jesus and the second eight chapters about why did he come and what does he require. This is the very turning point at the end of chapter eight when finally the elephant in the room, they're not in a room, they're out in the countryside, but the elephant out in the countryside is identified. He finally asks the question that's on everybody's lips, everybody's minds, but no one's talking about. He says, "Okay, who do people say that I am? And we see the disciples give the ancient answers. Some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some say you're one of the prophets. Now they were normal answers for that time and that place. We we can know about these kinds of answers because we've got other references to first century Palestinian life than the Bible. Uh, We've got the writings, for example, of the Jewish historian Josephus, who talks about John the Baptist and tells us about the life of John the Baptist and the fact that John the Baptist was beheaded by King Herod, which is described in Mark's Gospel just a couple of chapters before this. We, we know why Herod did it, and we know that even Josephus, the non-Christian Jewish historian, knew that, that this caused great consternation everywhere because people knew that John the Baptist was innocent and that Herod was guilty and he had no right to assassinate this prophet and so Herod we're told was spooked by it because when Jesus went around doing miracles everybody knew that John the Baptist was connected to Jesus and now the miracles are happening is this John the Baptist come back from the dead to spook me it was prophesied in the Old Testament that Elijah was going to come before the great day of the kingdom of God Jesus goes around talking about the kingdom of God it's about to come is Jesus the Elijah no John the Baptist was the Elijah jesus is the one that comes after the elijah but that was a reasonable jewish question to ask if you're an old testament jew and somebody comes around preaching the coming of the judgment of god the coming of the kingdom of god is this the elijah he's doing great prophetic miracles he's drawing big crowds he's a great preacher like elijah is he elijah and others said no no he's not elijah he's just one of the prophets we haven't had them lately, but this sounds like they're coming again. We had John a few little months ago, now we've got Jesus. It's, it sounds like a new prophetic age. They're very good first century Jewish answers. But if we ask these questions today, I doubt that anybody would give those answers. They're not the modern answers, are they? The modern answers are quite different. In many places, we've done surveys on who people think Jesus is. I mean one survey we did down at New South Wales University some years ago where we interviewed 500 people and said in your opinion who do you think Jesus is? And the answers you get are positive, neutral and negative. There are positive answers, people say he's God, he's the Messiah, he's the savior, he's the lord. There are neutral answers. Well, he was a good man, he was a prophet, he was a teacher, he was a founder of a religion. And then there's negative answers. Well, he's a legend, he's a myth. But then you ask the other question. On what evidence have you for your answer? What's the evidence? Often and usually, there's very little evidence. It's just the prejudice of how my family brought me up. It's just what I heard, what I read in the newspaper, and you know you can trust the newspapers. It's usually not fact. But it's based on prejudice and therefore it's not faith because faith is based in facts it's fiction that lead people to these conclusions sadly often the fiction it's based on gives a positive answer they say oh I believe he's the saviour of the world and you say oh good how do you know that well I've heard about it that's very sad Jesus, though, changes the question. Who do you say that I am? It's even more emphatic than that, and this translation picks up the emphasis. It says there in verse 29, But what about you? He asked. Who do you say that I am? Now that's a different kind of question, isn't it? It's an existential question, not an academic one. It tells you more about the person answering than it does about the topic. See, who did Australia vote for at the last election? Well, you can say everybody could agree, really, it's not all that difficult. The majority of Australia wound up in its electoral codes, etc., to vote for the Liberal National Party. You may be a Labour Party person and you'd say it. You may be a Liberal Party person and say it. You might have voted informally and you could still say it. That's just the facts of what is. But if I asked you a second question I said, but you, who did you vote for? See, so it's a different question, isn't it? It's a very different question. Now I'm not really finding out anything about the objective world out there. Now I'm going to find out something about you that's why the right answer when someone says to you who did you vote for is none of your business it's a secret ballot i don't have to reveal myself like that i don't have to show myself like that. it's a different kind of question isn't it and so we read again the ancient answers peter said you are the christ the word christ is the same it's the greek word for messiah which is the hebrew word it means the same thing For all through the Old Testament, we're prophesied, not all through the Old Testament, but the second half of the the Old Testament prophesies that a day is coming when a King, a Messiah, a Christ is coming. And that the King of Israel is going to rule all the nations of the world. It was an unlikely, preposterous idea. It's like saying the Premier of New South Wales is going to rule all over the world. Even how frequently we have premiers, it really is fairly unstable world government, isn't it? But the possibility that somehow New South Wales, I like this idea as a New South Welshman, but the possibility that New South Wales is going to be the seat of the government of the world is preposterous. Well, so the Jews. Just a little nation beaten up and bashed around by everybody else, that we're going to have a king, and our king is not only going to rule us, our king is going to rule the whole Roman Empire as well, the whole Greek Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Persian... I'm just mentioning some of the empires that had beaten up the Jews. That, that this king is going to rule over all these people? Peter said, you're the one. But again, you see, that's Peter's answer. That's an ancient answer. What are the modern answer? Well, the modern answer is you. Who do you think Jesus is? Not who do others think Jesus is. Not who did Peter and the apostles think Jesus is. Not who do your parents think Jesus is. Who do you think Jesus is? And when you're ready, when you have got an answer in your head, then are you ready for the next two questions? How do you know? Uh, That is, on what evidence have you got to base that opinion? So that if you and I were to talk over the refreshments up the back there, and I said, "Well, well, okay, who do you think Jesus is? And you say, you can rest assured my next question is, well, how do you know? Are you ready for that one? And then there's another one that flows from it. What are you going to do about it? How do you know? What are you going to do about it? For some people here tonight, may I suggest that's about as far as you and I can go in this sermon? Because you need to read more, don't you? You've got the questions fixed for you. I've done you a service in that regard. I've given you the questions to fix, but you actually need to go and find out, don't you? Because you don't know. And you don't know... What you do know is that you haven't any real, rational, reasonable basis upon which you could make an answer to the question. And so you need to find out more. Now, I don't want you to stop listening. Never want you to stop listening. Don't want you to stop listening because in the next little while I will tell you more so that you can start your research and inquiry. But in a sense, it's about as far as you and I can get or you can get tonight... But you need to go home and read and think. You need to ask friends about it. You need to get a Bible and actually check it out. You need. That is, I don't want you to give your life away on the whim of an evening. I want you to give your life away because you know it's true. So check it out. It's so true, I don't have any worry saying to people, go check it out. But if you've received the right answer from Peter as Jesus did then he explains for the first time why did he come. So verse 31 you'll notice then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and then he must be killed and after three days rise again. He accepted what Peter had told him Verse 30, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about it. Yes, you're right, I'm the Christ. But keep it mum. Zipper it up. We're not telling anybody. But let me tell you about the Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man's a funny phrase. It was a funny phrase in the first century, and it's a funny phrase today. It meant three different things in the Aramaic that Jesus used to speak. It could mean oneself, the third person impersonal, singular. Just a little bit of technical grammar for those of us who are over 40. It meant oneself. You see, one can talk about oneself if one wants to, but one sounds a little strange when one does. One is expected to have one's corgis running around one's feet and live in one's large castle if one is going to speak about one like that. You know who one is talking about, don't you? But you think, how odd... Well, Aramaic had that that one sense. Secondly, it's used in the Old Testament to emphasize a person's humanity. So God speaks to the prophet Ezekiel and he says, "Son of man, stand on your feet and answer me." And it emphasizes the human nature of it. But there's a third reference in the book of Daniel where the judgment day happens. In this description of the Judgment Day, God is there, seated at his throne, the books are all opened, the peoples of the world are about to be judged and then suddenly the Son of Man comes, riding in the clouds and God gives to this Son of Man the right to rule all nations for all time. We don't know where he came from. We don't know why he's given the authority. We don't know what he, any name he has. All we know is he's called the Son of Man. When Jesus then starts talking about the Son of Man, initially his hearers would hear him talking about himself. One's talking about oneself. He's a little strange, but then again he does some pretty strange things. So that's not surprising. He talks in a strange way. He's emphasising the fact that he's a human. Well, we all know that. We see he's a human. We're living with him. Who would think, though, that it's Daniel 7 that's being referred to? The judgment day when he's going to rule all the universe. Well, you may think that, except look what he says about the Son of Man in verse 31. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, be killed. (laughs) That's not Daniel 7. That's not that Son of Man. He's going to rule the universe. He must be just talking about himself. He's going to get killed. Uh, This would have been impossible for the son of man but actually it'd be pretty impossible for jesus if he's the christ so peter takes him aside because peter knows he's the christ and peter says to him, yeah you don't know, hang on you're the next ruler of the universe you're the, you you can not be killed that's not going to happen to you you're the christ the king the ruler of the world the liberator of israel from the romans you're not the one who's going to suffer peter thinks the same way the world thinks that the way to success is conquest. Because I was preparing for a talk about gender the other day, I was reading a book by by Professor Llewellyn Jones called Every Woman, as one does, doesn't he? And in it I found this very uh, strange quote, which has got nothing to do much with women. In fact, everything not to do with women. He says, political power, industrial power and military power. The three props upon which Western society at present are still predominantly male preserves. You see, the three props that support the Western world, political power, industrial power, military power. Peter thought like that. You are the Christ. Look at the crowds. We're going to have a big political movement. Look at the the way you are going to rule. Let's get an army together. Let's take on the Romans. It's just normal thinking. It's how Muhammad came to rule Arabia in the seventh century AD. He came to Mecca at the head of an army of 10,000 soldiers to demand submission from the city. And look how different Jesus is. For Jesus came to his capital city, Jerusalem, without an army. Not on a a great war horse, on a donkey. In fact, not even a full-grown donkey, a little donkey. And he didn't come in order to conquer Jerusalem. He came to be conquered by Jerusalem, to be killed. Jesus' prophecy and plan was his death and resurrection. Islam says that Jesus is a prophet, but it ignores his prophecies and actually denies that he was ever crucified. They said it didn't happen. Now, I'll just move aside for a moment and just point this out. For those of you who want to say, well, look, it doesn't matter which religion you are, just provided you, you you're a moderate That's absolute nonsense and gobbledygook. Which religion matters a lot because truth matters. Islam and Christianity can't both be true. Christianity says Jesus died and and was crucified and that is central to everything about Christianity. Islam says Jesus didn't die. He wasn't crucified. They both can't be true. (laughs) They both may be false, Jesus never lived. But they both can't be true, can they? If Islam's true, Christianity's false. If Christianity's true, Islam's false. But they both can't be true. So if they both can't be true, the person who says all religions teach the same thing must also be false, mustn't it? So all you need to do is settle down and find out the historical evidences for Jesus' crucifixion. If there aren't any, go with the Muslims. If there are, give up the Muslims. (laughs) But don't go on with this stupidity that people go on with. All religions teach the same thing. That's taught to you by people who don't believe in any religion. Their religion is poppycock. Got a lot of politicians in that bark. Jesus and Muhammad are as different as you can go. One conquered the world with military power. The other conquered the world by being crucified. Christian zealotry is to do good works. Islamic zealotry is what is terrifying the Western world today. They both flow out of the two different men. Jesus said he'd come to suffer and be rejected and killed and rise. That is what he predicted... And when you read it, then, actually, put yourself back in that moment. It's bizarre. The king is coming to coronation by execution. Coronation by assassination. I haven't met Prince Charles. He's not one of my close uh, confidants in life. But can you imagine that he thinks that when his mother dies and he is taken into Westminster Abbey in order to be crowned King of England, and if this is still the case, King of Australia, can he imagine that he is going to be executed at his coronation? No, it's unimaginable. It doesn't make sense. I mean, you're supposed to stand around saying, long live the king, not off with his head. That's a Republican coronation. Jesus says, yes, you're right, I'm the Christ, I'm the king, I'm going to rule the world and they're going to kill me at my... Repeatedly Jesus had to explain to his disciples because they couldn't make sense of it. Over and over again in the next few chapters of Mark's Gospel as you read through, you'll find Jesus being telling them that he's going to be crucified, the Son of Man is going to die. He says in chapter 10, the Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is why he came, not to establish a kingdom like the rest of the world by military power, economic dominance, cultural imperialism, but to free the world from our bondage to evil, to the devil, to death, to self. He came to die for us, in our place, as our substitute, as our ransom. That's what a ransom is, isn't it? They've taken you captive. They've kidnapped you. They say, I want $100,000. For some of us, they say, give us $5. That'll do for them. Jesus comes as the ransom price, as the person who pays to liberate the captives. Now again, for many of us here tonight, that's about as far as we can go. You see, you need to understand your own captivity if you're ever going to appreciate what Jesus did for you. If you don't know that you're a captive, you'll say, well, okay, I can see that he's the Christ, but he came to release people and I'm not in need of release. You've got to see your captivity to sin and to Satan, to death and to judgment before you'll ever appreciate it. I've worked on and off over many years with the Alcoholics Anonymous people and they can assure you there's no alcoholic who's ever ever cured of their addiction as long as they deny the truth that they're an alcoholic. The vast majority of alcoholics, when you meet them, when you confront them, they say, oh no, I don't have a drink problem. Yeah, yeah, I drink more than they say that you're supposed to in a health system, but I'm pretty healthy. I don't have a problem. You'd be surprised how drunk a person can get and still maintain they don't have a problem. And as long as they don't have a problem, they never solve their problem. No sinner is ever forgiven of their failure as long as they are denying the truth that they're a sinner in need of forgiveness. So as long as you don't see your captivity to immorality, your captivity to self-centeredness, your captivity to selfishness, as long as you don't see it, you won't value what Jesus came to do. You won't see the point of what he comes to do. But keep listening, keep listening. Because then when you might be able to understand who he is, why he came, you may be able to understand what he requires of us. For when you first actually hear, it's as shocking as hearing the king comes to die. It's over the page, on the back, what does he require? For he called both the crowds and the disciples to hear his call, and he lays it out plainly, if you want to be his follower, this is what you must do. And he says to us, in verse 34, it's over now on page 1000, page 1000, that he called the crowd to him along with his disciples said, if anyone would come after me he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. He lays it out plainly. If you want to be his follower this is what it is. It are three things that boil down to one and the same thing. Deny, take up the cross, follow me. To deny means to say no. If someone makes an accusation against you and you deny the accusation, you're saying, no, no, that's not true. If someone was to to deny themselves an ice cream, they're saying, No, no, I won't have an ice cream. Don't know why they'd say that myself, but you can deny yourself an ice cream. I never do. But what does he ask us to deny? Not an accusation. Not an ice cream or something trivial like that. No. You've got to say no to self. No to self-rule. No to self-government. No to self-centeredness. No to selfishness. You've got to say no to self. And you've got to take up your cross. The cross, the crucifixion, was a barbaric exhibition of power. It was a killing for show. You can kill people a lot more simply than crucifying them. But crucifying them, well, it was a way of exercising Roman power and control. It was a public relations exercise. You put this man on a cross, you stick him up at a pole, it's going to take him a day or two screaming in agony before he dies, and then the birds come and pluck out his eyes and tear the flesh off you, and it says, do you want this to happen to you? Then you obey Rome. It's a huge political statement. And the person who was to be crucified carried his cross, piece out to the stake. The stake was always there, they crucified many the Romans. And in carrying the cross, you are declaring yourself to be a dead man, like the kind of medieval stocks where you were at the mercy of the crowd to make fun of, to buffet. And, to and before being strung up in ignominious shame, the crowd could have the fun because crucifixion was never done privately. It was a public exhibition of the power of Rome and the weakness, the failure of the crucified. And so to take up your cross is to accept the world's ridicule and rejection, in modern parallel it's the IS beheadings of people it's a cruel show of power isn't it and it's meant to terrorise you, it aimed to terrorise you into accepting their authority and their power well the Romans didn't behead you publicly on a video, the Romans crucified you publicly, Jesus says you want to be my disciple pick up your cross because that's where I'm going it's a big ask because he wants you to follow him. His invitation then was a physical one to come to Jerusalem where he was to be killed. His invitation always is to follow him in laying down your life, to no longer live for yourself. It means the willingness to be physically killed for him. Sitting here in North Sydney, this just seems so unlikely, doesn't it? But earlier this year, four teenagers, all under 15... Living in Iraq were captured by IS and were asked repeatedly to accept Muhammad as the prophet of God and to deny Jesus. And they refused to deny Jesus. They refused to accept Muhammad as their prophet. They refused and were all beheaded. And they weren't yet 15. It will mean no longer living for yourself or your family or your career, but for him who's died for you. You have to be believed, you have to be confident that it's true, don't you? <laughs> to accept death for him. But across the world and down the centuries, people have accepted death rather than deny Jesus. For they denied themselves, have taken up the cross to follow him. And you must do that if you ever want to call yourself a Christian. Do you see how important the question of who is Jesus <laughs> I mean, if Jesus isn't God, to give your life to him is a terrible blasphemy, isn't it? I and mean, it's appalling. If Jesus is God, then anything less would be unsuitable. <laughs> See how important that question, who Jesus is? Who do you think Jesus is? For why he came into the world was to die for you. And what he requires of you, to put it in the Australian vernacular, is to drop dead. You can see it there in number 35, page 1000. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. If this is the Christ who has come to be the ransom price for us, the man who died in our place and rises again to rule the world, then this is exactly what you would expect him to require of you. But here's the next place for people who want to get off. You want to say, well I'm not sure about this Philip, I don't blame you for saying that but I want to tell you now, you can't, it's too late, should have got off on the first two places. Go out, find about who Jesus is. Find out that you're a captive needing him but if you know who Jesus is and you know that you actually are a captive in need of him then you need to give your life to him. it's illogical to say I'm happy with enough that he is the Christ and I believe that he died and rose again for me but I don't want him running my life. That is an illogicality there friends. Jesus answers the question as to why. Why we should do this. Why we should give our life to him. So hang in there and listen to the reasons Jesus gives. He gives three reasons. First is the argument in verse 36. For what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? You know it's true. You know who Jesus is. You know why he came. You know what he requires. But you want to hang on to your own life? You want to make it your own? Why? Why is it so special to you? What's so special about you? What are you going to gain that's worth losing your soul for? a house, a career, a harbour view an overseas trip uh, the boyfriend, the girlfriend what is there that is so special in your life that it's worth losing your very soul for? Have we not read of the rich and famous? We have a richer, less satisfied society than ever how long will you go living before you realise that life is nothing but a long queue to the crematorium how many funerals do you need to teach you of your own mortality? What do you need in the coffin? Naked we came into the world, naked we go out of the world. Funeral shrouds do not have pockets. What is it that you want to take in your funeral shroud? What, what is it that you want to have buried within your, in your coffin that is so valuable to you, you want to take it to hell? What would a man gain if he gains the whole world at the cost of his soul. I know a man who was dying in hospital. His family gathered around him. But so committed was he to the making of money that he lay there in the last hours of his life trading on the stock exchange. He was too busy trading to talk to his family. No one I know who's heard that thinks that there was anything but insanity in the man's head. Are you any different to that? Is that your insanity? That you are so keen on on your career, on your success, on your boyfriend, on your harbour view, on your on on just self control, on, on living my life my way that you will lose your soul for it? Jesus gives a second reason which is very similar to the first in verse thirty seven. What can a man give in return, in exchange for his life? For however rich you are, however well educated you are, however well famous you become, death will not be cheated. You will die and it will end your wealth, your education and your fame. And the size of your headstone will be of no significance. You can have a massive headstone, you'll still be dead. Eaten by the maggots and the worms, it makes no difference. They're not choosy. The death subject, of course, is the taboo subject of our society. We have philosophies about life that will never address death, even though death is the only certainty of life. Even taxes can be avoided. Ask the multinationals, ask the big wealthy people, they know how to avoid the taxes. But death will never be cheated. Mr Packer didn't pay taxes, but he's dead. For those that... Do like the existentialists, the theater of the absurd, etc., like Camus and Sartre and Beckett and Pinter, or the popular versions like Woody Allen. Death makes all of life meaningless and futile. <laughs> to be lived in a full of party rage, because there is nobody that you can make sense of this life if the only thing in life is death. Whatever philosophy of life you want to live with, you've got to live with the reality and the fact. Of death. It's the certain fact. So if you have a philosophy of life which really doesn't deal with death, you've got a very, very ineffective, poor philosophy of life. Jesus is all about death. He came to die and He shows you how to die and how to live again. So what would you hang on into this life? Your retirement fund? the golf course, the fishing, the fame what price do you put on your soul what exchange will you have I know a man who retired early because he was sick of working and he had enough money (laughs) and he enjoyed golf and he played golf every day of his retirement seven days a week he played golf he died last year Who wants his golf sticks? What use are they to him now? What value is it? He can't even remember his handicap. It doesn't matter. Years, 15 years of walking around golf courses. It was Bernard Shaw, wasn't it, who said that golf is a good walk ruined (laughs) for the rest who is ashamed is the third argument rest assured if you're ashamed of Jesus in this world Jesus will be ashamed of you when he comes in judgment at the end of time for Jesus is the son of man not just because he was human but also because he is the man The one who at the judgment day will be given all authority on heaven and earth to rule all nations for all time. When he called himself son of man, he meant Daniel 7. He meant I'm the one to whom the judgment is given so that all the universe will be ruled by me. What kind of megalomaniac lunatic was there in the first century Palestine who was saying to his disciples, you know, I'm going to rule all nations for all time? I mean, if I were to say to you that, you know, folks, I think I'm going to be the ruler of the universe, you've got to check me into North Shore, haven't you? (laughs) I mean, what kind of megalomaniac thinks he's going to be remembered in a thousand years' time, let alone followed in a thousand years' time, let alone followed by millions of people in a thousand years' time? He was this Jewish prophet who said, that he was going to be the ruler of the universe? Your problem with the question, of course, is... He is. (laughs) 2,000 years later, Christmas holds up the world. His birth stops the trading in China, a communist atheist country. He is the man. The man. And so he warns in verse 38... Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. The son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his father's glory with his holy angels. I talked to a lovely man one time, big man, huge man. He would have made Simon Manchester the second tallest man on the staff. He really was. He works on telegraph lines and he lived a really hard life outdoors. And his mother was a Christian. And he wanted to marry a Christian. And so he knew that he had to become a Christian in order to marry a Christian. So he came to me to see what he needed to become a Christian. So I went through this passage with him. And this huge, outdoor, rugged man broke down in tears. And I said, what is your problem? He says, I know it's true. I know I should. But he said, the blokes at work, they'd never understand. And he said, every Thursday night we get drunk down in the pub. He said, I couldn't go down and not get drunk with them. And I couldn't not go down with them. He said, I couldn't face it. How pathetic is that? I mean, that fits in the same category as trading on the stock exchange in your deathbed, isn't it? Are you willing to profess Jesus in front of others? For if you're not willing to profess Jesus, you don't actually trust him. Not with your life. You haven't given up yourself. You're still hanging on to your self-esteem. You're still hanging on to your pride. Oh no, you accept Jesus, there'll be people who will hate you. I can testify to that. You publicly declare your faith in Jesus and you will be ridiculed and made fun of. I can publicly testify to that. No, no, at the workplace it will be awkward. At the home it can be very awkward. No. But if you know the truth, then have the guts and courage to live the truth. If you know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of Man who has died to free you from judgment and will return as your king and your judge, then give your life to him and don't worry about what the world thinks. Don't fear what they fear. Many have made this change already. And we can testify that it's the wisest thing we ever did. Now you may know, say, but I'm, I'm not ready, I'm not ready. Okay. I'm quite comfortable with that. Get ready. Because you see, there are the hypocrites. They, they don't call themselves hypocrites. Only religious people are hypocrites, of course, like me. But, you know, there are hypocrites who, who don't want to have anything to do with the church, really, you know. No. I wouldn't want to belong to the church, it's full of hypocrites it's never full of hypocrites, there's always spare seats (laughs) just join in with us but there are the hypocrites who want to say I need time to find out more but I'm too busy to you've just said no haven't you on the basis of ignorance you've said no if you're too busy to find out who God is you've rejected God that's a nonsense might not be honest and say no I don't believe that and face the consequence of our saying and why and say well because I'm ignorant and I base my life on ignorance is the way I want to live and you think Christians are stupid <laughs> if the reason why you cannot now give your life to Jesus is because you don't know who Jesus is well, then you've got a job to do, haven't you? Find out. If the reason why is because you can't yet see yourself as a captive, keep coming to church, because this is a gathering of sinners. It's the only club you, need that you can join in the world where you have to profess yourself a sinner to join. You want to join a golf club? You've got to have a friend testify to the fact that you are an absolutely honest, integrity person. You've got to get them to lie. They're members already, so they can. But you need to be able to get them to tell the world. that. If you want to be a lawyer, you've got to get them to tell, you've got to get another lawyer to testify to the fact that you're an honest person. A lawyer. The only pub I know in the world where you've got to be immoral to join is the church. So keep coming here if you don't know about your own immorality, because we can tell you about it. For we tell you about ours, and when you hear about ours, you'll say, "Oh, gee, I'm like that too. Yeah, well, yeah, I did that too. Yeah, that's what I'm like too, because we face the truth that we need a saviour, and we know you do. So if you know who Jesus is, and if you know you need to be forgiven, then what he requires of you is to deny yourself Take up your cross and follow him. How? The prayer at the bottom of the page, we've come to it. Look at it with me. It's got three paragraphs. Three central big ideas. One is the declaration about yourself and your need. I know I'm not worthy to be accepted by God, See, I don't deserve a gift of eternal life because I'm guilty of rebelling against God and turning my back on God. I ignore God. I need forgiveness. You see, you've got to reach that stage first. Second paragraph is thanking God for what he's done. Thank you for sending your son to die for me so that I could be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me a new life. The third paragraph is the prayer of the prayer please forgive me, see the first paragraph I need forgiveness, the second paragraph Jesus dies so that I can be forgiven please forgive me but it's not just to forgive me, please forgive me and change me that I may now live with Jesus as king with Jesus as my ruler you see I'm saying no to myself and yes to the king of my life It's praying this prayer and then living it out. Back in 1969, I know most of you weren't alive then, but back in 1969, I walked into a building a bit like this, not as old, but a bit like this, and I said to a beautiful young lady that I would live with her for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness, and de- until death us do part. I gave my life to her And wonder of wonder, she gave her life to me. And then after we said this, she went home to live with her parents, I went home to live with my parents, and we've never spoken to each other since. No. After that, we left our parents' home, and we bought our furniture together, and we started to live together, and we had our children together, and our grandchildren together, and she's still with me in church to this night. We've lived together out that, but the promises we made are the basis of all the rest of life. This prayer is like that. It's saying to God, no longer I, but you. Thank you for sending Jesus that I can make and have you. Please forgive me, change me that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. So here's a proposal for you, isn't it? To give your life away in order to find it. I'm going to pray this prayer out loud and I'm going to invite you to pray it with me in the quietness of your own mind. For those of you who were blocked in those first two questions I want you to listen to it because it's like going to a wedding before you get married it tells you what marriage is about that's what the wedding does to those who aren't getting married yet it tells you what's involved I want you to listen to it for those of us who have given our life to Jesus many times we love to pray it again and again and again just like I like saying to my wife again and again I love you I love you I love you because I still do and I want her to know it But for those of you who have never prayed this prayer, those of you who know it's true but have never done anything about it, those of you who are ashamed of standing up and calling yourself Christians at school or at university, those of you who know you need Jesus and forgiveness, then I want you to be praying it in the quietness of your own heart and mind to God. And I have a special encouragement for you afterwards. So let's pray, shall we? Dear God, I know that I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I'm guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. And I need forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and change me that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. Amen. And if that is your prayer for the first time, or it might be for the first time for a long, long time, I want you to know you will be forgiven. How do I know you'll be forgiven? Because Jesus died so that God will forgive you. And you will be changed. How do I know you'll be changed? Because Jesus isn't dead. He rose from the dead, and he is at work in this world by his spirit, changing people who ask for such change and so if this is new for you then I want you to tell someone about it the easy way of telling a Christian about it to get help is just to say I prayed that prayer for the first time and we'd love to help you as you start on this new life in Christ Jesus yeah, say it to one of the staff members to, to Chase or to, uh, to Simon, just look for a tall man <laughs> or say it to the Christian friend who brought you along just say I prayed that prayer And we will help you as you start walking the new life in Christ Jesus.